Welcome to the Zero Hour by Safeguard Cyber. We have a very special guest this week. In fact, so special, we are kicking up our usual cadence and coming out with this episode early. Yes, Paul Barrett, the Deputy Director of the New York University Stern Center for Business and Human Rights, joins us. Yes, so they put out a report on September 3rd called Disinformation and the 2020 elections, how social media industry should prepare. It's a great report. It's got a lot of press. Um, we're very happy and pleased that he agreed to come on the podcast and give us the lowdown. Um, so without further ado, here is Paul Barrett. Hello, Paul Barrett. Hi, Paul. This is Ashley Stone from Safeguard Cyber. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And you? Doing well. I've also got George Comedy, my co-host, on the line. Hey there. Hi, how are you, George? All right. Um, thank you very much for your time. We're very much looking forward to this conversation. Glad to do it. Thank you. So I'm not sure if you've done podcast interviews before. What we'll do is just start rolling. We're recording the whole time and then we'll wrap up. So if there's anything you want to pause, talk about, we can jump right into it. Uh, that's fine with me. I have, I have done a podcast or two, but go right ahead. All right. Great. All right. So we will get started with... Um, so I noticed that what caught my eye first with this report is that it came out of the uh, Stern School of Business at NYU. And I am familiar mm -hmm. with that school, but as somebody who's now been kind of thoroughly immersed in cybersecurity, I was curious to learn more about the Center for Business and Human Rights. Could you tell us a little sure. bit about the mission of that part of the school? I'd be happy to. Uh, the Center for Business and Human Rights was started in 2013 uh, by my boss, Mike Posner, who um, was an assistant secretary of state in the uh, first Obama administration uh, for uh, human rights, uh, democracy and labor. And Mike is a well-known figure in the human rights world. Uh, he came to uh, the Stern School of Business as a professor when he got done with his government stint and simultaneously started this center to focus on the human rights implications of corporate conduct. So unlike traditional human rights uh, organizations that tend to focus on uh, government activities and how that affects uh, populations, uh, this center focuses on corporate activity. And so uh, we look at topics uh, like um, the manufacturing of garments in South Asia and more recently mm -hmm. in, in Africa, uh, the movement of migrant labor from South Asia to the Middle East and how those workers um, are treated. Uh, we have looked at the ways that uh, uh, investment pro uh, professionals uh, analyze uh, so-called ESG investing, uh, an environment, uh, uh, society, uh, social and, and governance, mm -hmm. and how effective those, uh, those designations are. And uh, along the way, uh, Mike uh, decided to begin looking at the uh, role in society of social media companies and what affects uh, the conduct of social media companies 
have uh, on their users, um, on society at large, and what uh, things uh, could be improved uh, with better self-governance uh, on the part of social media companies and possibly uh, uh, government oversight, although as a general point of orientation, we are skeptical of any kind of content-related government regulation, um, right. although we look favorably on certain narrow uh, uh, potential regulations, uh, such as uh, greater disclosure of uh, political advertising. Oh, good. I so, mean, yeah, I found it fascinating because um, it comes at it from a slightly different angle. Again, we've seen a lot of cybersecurity research or we've seen uh, public policy research, but coming from a business angle, I thought the report stood out because it focused on concrete recommendations rather than arguing about this in the abstract. Right. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's our style. Uh, all the research we do uh, concludes with um, specific, practical-minded uh, recommendations, which we then try to um, uh, put into practice however we can, whether it's through uh, you know, holding conferences, uh, you know, direct um, uh, contact with uh, the companies uh, in question, because it, it is part of the center's mission to advocate on behalf of our conclusions in addition to doing the, uh, the basic research itself. Great. So we, we've been talking about the report, but for our listeners, can you summarize what the report is and what your intentions were? Absolutely. Uh, so the report uh, is entitled Disinformation in the 2020 Election, How the Social Media Industry uh, Should Prepare. And uh, my goal in putting it together was to identify uh, some of the sources and types of uh, disinformation that uh, seemed uh, most relevant to the coming uh, election cycle. Uh, obviously, this is taking place in a certain context, the context being what happened in 2016, uh, the uh, meddling uh, of the Russians uh, in that election has been well-documented and, and discussed to a great, de uh, extensive degree. Indeed. And the question then arises, so now we have the next presidential election after that, um, are we likely to see exactly the same thing? Are we likely to see something completely different? Um, will the Russians uh, be back in play? Will others uh, be playing a role? And um, what, if anything, can be done about uh, this activity, which our premise is, uh, is a, a, a threat to uh, democracy, to civil discourse, um, to the uh, holding of free and fair elections, which are all important uh, human rights values. Yes, I think, well, for one, anyone who's listening, you should definitely download the report. It's uh, clean and clear and concise, uh, which is refreshing when it comes to this level of, uh, of research. And again, it, it comes back to some actionable steps. And we've read some reports out of the Army War College that brings up the point that this is a way for our adversaries to attack at the connective tissue 
that, you know, connects government, the citizenry and the military. And it's very difficult for any adversary to attack any one of those things. If you think military, it's a hot war, open kinetic conflict. Uh, government would be, you know, something else. And then it's downright impossible not to get drawn into a war if you attack the citizenry. But this uh, these campaigns go after the civil society, which is the thing that binds all three together. And it, as long as you can create division there in that connective tissue, you know, a society can begin to, to fall apart. Um, and I think to that end, one of the more startling re- revelations uh, is that the prediction of do- domestically generated disinformation will be higher than that of foreign um, and also there are some you know legal implications for how you can block foreign access versus uh, uh, local citizens and we've said this for a while that the playbook is now out there right so we've we've seen Iranian influence operations take similar attacks we've seen China in Southeast Asia um, so how does this change in who creates the content shift the conversation in terms of protecting elections well, uh, what you said about uh, domestically generated uh, disinformation is uh, very true. It has uh, uh, become the predominant form of um, false and divisive uh, content uh, on social media uh, in, in terms of volume. Uh, and it is tricky to deal with because it's coming from many disparate sources, mm-hmm. often bubbling up from uh, uh, sites, anonymous sites like 4chan or 8chan uh, or uh, Gab and moving from there to Twitter and or Facebook and moving from there sometimes, uh, you know, into the mainstream media via uh, Fox. Um, So you have a a lot of things coming uh, simultaneously. And I've just been mentioning uh, material coming from the right wing. It's important to stress that uh, there's been some examples of domestically generated disinformation coming from uh, liberals as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it is uh, it while it is predominantly a conservative uh, phenomenon, it is not exclusively a conservative phenomenon. Uh, what to do about it is sometimes uh, more of a conundrum than say what to do about Russian-generated disinformation. When you have uh, Russian operatives who are pretending to be Americans, uh, it, you know, uh, getting involved uh, with false accounts and pages and groups, um, it doesn't strike uh, very many people as problematic to simply remove that material as being uh, phony uh, and uh, potentially destructive. However, when you have similar material coming from within the country, uh, you begin to have, you, you have to ask the question of how is this material different from ordinary nasty politics? Mm-hmm. And, and do the uh, purveyors of the material enjoy some type of uh, presumption that their expression is protected, uh, legally speaking, constitutionally speaking? Uh, so it is more complicated. It's more complicated for the government to deal with. Uh, and, uh, you know, that just makes this the whole challenge in this area all the more daunting. Yeah. I think the, one of the things that stands out in the report is that you're very careful, uh, and 
correct to point out that the First Amendment does not apply to social media. Spoiler alert. It is not a public institution. It is private enterprise. So by dint of terms of use, they they can govern uh, better what occurs on that platform. And it's it's not that, liable uh, to the same to the same First Amendment issues. That is uh, exactly right. Um and what you say, of course, um, uh, does not uh, suggest um, that uh, a, a Facebook or a Twitter or a YouTube should be uh, knocking material out willy-nilly without mm-hmm. any standards or, or uh, you know, clear-cut rules and, and so forth. Um, promoting free expression is a is a laudable value, um, whether it's constitutionally protected or not. Um, but in the end, um, these platforms are being superintended uh, by the companies that own and operate them. Uh, they are already making many, many decisions every day to take material down because it violates their own guidelines, their community standards. They have different terms for the, uh, for those rules that they set. Um, and uh, it's in that context that we feel uh, they should be looking at, at disinformation as well as a another category of potentially harmful uh, content. And we would we go so far as to argue that when they encounter provably false material, uh, that rather than just downrank it, which, for example, Facebook is, is the current practice, they should go ahead and, and remove it altogether. Yes. And I think that's a another key distinction in the report is um, very clear about the terminology between disinformation versus provably false, which is kind of a, a more nuanced subset of that. And then, Absolutely. To, yeah. And then to that end, you also propose not only taking it down, but storing it in an archive, kind of ring fencing it, which would allow academics and reporters and others to study it, um, you know, I guess under the assumption that they could better understand tactics or understand how to refine um, algorithms against it. I thought that was interesting, uh, not least because our uh, solution, and I'll try not to make this a commercial for us, also provides archiving. And and that was just uh, solving a business problem, but we actually found that for one of our government clients, we caught a post that used forged letterhead, like it was a a fake letter purporting that this particular minister's department was trying to rig the election in favor of the prime minister. That post was subsequently deleted after an hour. I think somebody got spooked, but we had, we had a record of it. So the federal police then had a system of record where they could say, we, we saw this, this is out there. And that was something that they could go chase down. So I just thought that was a very interesting idea. Um, could you elaborate on how you envision that archive uh, being used or what access controls yeah. would be there? Sure. Um, you know, I think uh, it's always uh, helpful to uh, talk about a specific example uh, of something like this rather than uh, in generalities. So let's use as an example uh, a uh, notorious piece of domestically generated uh, disinformation that was not just disinformation, but was provably false. Mm-hmm. And that is the uh, uh, the video that circulated uh, in May of this year, right. uh, depicting uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi giving a public talk. Uh, the the video was manipulated, namely it was 
slowed down in a way that made it appear uh, that she was slurring her her speech and that mm-hmm. something was wrong with her, or perhaps that she was inebriated, drunk. Um, the uh, a lot. This video drew a lot of attention. It was uh, posted initially to a Facebook page by a conservative activist. Uh, there was a lot of consternation over it because, in fact, Speaker Pelosi was not drunk on that occasion. Um, the uh, platforms uh, determined that it was, in fact, false. It, it, it had been manip- manipulated. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, Facebook declined uh, to remove it altogether from uh, its platform, whereas YouTube um, did go ahead and remove it from its platform. So an interesting contrast, which shows mm-hmm. you that the standards are not uh, uniform. And I you know, personally think that's kind of a problem, but you, you know, you're not going to be able to force private companies to uh, remove something along those lines. And I think uh, if something like that is removed, there's a value to basically saving a copy of it that could be marked as false um, and then uh, put into a cordoned off archive so that in the wake of the incident, if a journalist wants to uh, write an article online, print, whatever, uh, television, whatever, they can go and look firsthand at what uh, the material looked like. Uh, Similarly, if a scholar wanted to uh, do something uh, in an academic vein, uh, he or she could uh, could go and, and look at the primary material, not rely on somebody's secondary description of it. Yeah, they could, it but, could be like applying to a, a research library, like when you pass exactly. your, your slips in the what, Library of Congress and they go get the file for you. Right. And But what you want to avoid is the uh, dissemination of the material. So uh, if, if the material could be kind of visible but locked down so it couldn't be shared or otherwise disseminated, uh, I think you end up with a sort of compromised situation that uh, allows uh, people to see the material in question uh, but arrests the process of uh, false material being uh, widely disseminated. Mm -hmm. Right. And a really important point that you bring up is if the content's taken down on one platform, but not another. It's still out there and it's being shared. So trying to find some sort of common ground or collaboration. You talk about how Pinterest policy, I believe, is one where they actually remove the content from their platform. And that seems to be pretty different than the policies we've seen for Facebook or YouTube. It is. And I think there would be some advantage um, to the uh, largest uh, platforms uh Sitting down and 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 together, uh, you know, with within whatever guidance they would need from their antitrust lawyers, uh, to talk about uh, just what what standards uh, ought to apply, so that there could be some uh, consistency. And and if if one platform uh, notices uh, something that's uh, awry uh, because a user has flagged it or uh, an AI filter has has flagged it, um, and they come to the conclusion that the that the uh, material is in fact false. That that would be shared uh, rapidly uh, with uh, the other platforms. Uh, yeah, and, it's, and why. yeah, and this isn't an alien concept. You know, they they already share information on right. malware and malicious links. They have a like a 
um, shared database that other developers can tap into. So it is that they have a knowledge sharing resource, but I think disinformation is harder to get your hands around than, you know, this yeah. link leads to this site, which is known to, to infect computers. Yeah. And, and I think it'd be a good point in the conversation to, uh, apropos of what you just said, to make the acknowledgement that all of this is, uh, very difficult, uh, challenging uh, material to, to, to deal with. Uh, the, the presumption is not that it would be easy for the platforms to do the sorts of things we're talking about. It would be, be quite difficult. Moreover, it, it is not the case that they would be able to uh, purge their platforms uh, with a you know press of a button uh, of all of this kind of material, whether it's disinformation in general or provably false content in particular, uh, this is difficult. And and you, we're not going to, none of these platforms are going to solve this problem completely uh, because new uh, harmful material is being generated all the time. Uh, when I talk in the report about removing provably false material, it's the implication is that it's when that comes to their attention, um, it, not right. not that they're going to be able to do it in a systematic way um, all at once on a, on a given day. I mean, look at the Christchurch massacre, you know, despite trying to engineer um, algorithms at, at breakneck speed, it has proved impossible yeah, to, there, to there capture. There are workarounds to right. share that content that is uh, blocked based on right. policies. Yeah. And you did, you brought up an interesting point. And I, I, I've been thinking about this separately, which is this notion of problems that you can solve, quote unquote, versus long term problems that must be managed. Right. And I think there was a lot of naivete on the part of Silicon Valley in the if anyone remembers uh, right after um the first stories of uh, misinformation and disinformation and political ad buying came out. You know, Zuckerberg said it is ridiculous to think that Facebook could change an election. Right. And I think it's steeped in a lot of the, what would I say, Silicon Valley sort of savior culture that, that technology is always neutral Right. And they're just like creating these platforms, whereas I think we've seen Pinterest take a stronger stance on this is our operational responsibility as a company. And so I think we need to think as a society and they need to think as private enterprise about the long term, which is, again, it will never be back to zero. Like we're just not going back to 2009 when it was just cat right. memes and kid photos like it's out there. And, uh, and it needs to be managed and there's not one silver bullet that's going to fix this problem. Yes, I agree with uh, all of what you just said. Um, cool. Well, yeah, so it's a big problem. We know collaboration is part of it. But if we, if we turn our attention away from the technology arguments, there's also the end user. What do you see as the role of the end user in helping to manage this problem? Well, that's a very important question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, because this is a problem that can only be uh, managed over time and can't be resolved with a snap of the fingers, um, there's a vital uh, role for the users uh, in all of these situations. I mean, people, uh, first of all, need at a very general level to be uh, skeptical of what mm -hmm. they see uh, on social media. And 
uh, I've argued in the report that in order to remind people of the need for the skepticism, that the platforms ought to uh, do some more uh, social media literacy uh, education right on their sites, so that as you log in, you would you would see. Uh, you know, perhaps a, a button you could click on that would remind you about the problem uh, of of false content and how it might manifest itself and so forth. Uh, at, a, at a very specific level, I think the skeptical but still enthusiastic uh, user of social media uh, needs to think twice before, uh, you know, sharing that uh, item that may seem salacious, may seem fascinating, the kind of thing your friends would really like uh, to uh, to have a look at. But before you retweet it, is, you know, is it true? Is it, is it, is it something that uh, you think would be a, a, a good idea for, you know, many people, hundreds of people, thousands of people to be um, slinging around uh, the internet? Or, or is it likely uh, something that is, you know, misleading? And uh, I don't think it's too much uh, to ask people to ask that question um, as they uh, go about their rounds uh, on various social media sites and uh, make decisions about what they're going to retweet and what they're going to share and so forth. Yeah, I think, uh, again, we live in a a different world than the average lay user. And I'll regularly get texts from friends and they'll share a tweet and be like, can you believe that these people live in this country? And I I shoot back. I was like, "Mm -hmm." there's like a 98% chance that that is entirely false. Like you just need to know that the anger and outrage you feel towards your fellow American is being implanted and actively encouraged by a foreign adversary. And I think that gives them a lot of pause, but it, it is almost a, a primal reaction, you know, because it's just yeah. trading on anger. Well, yeah, they're tapping into your group tribalism. So they know that you feel passionately right. about one way. It's very easy to write a title, a very misleading title about something that isn't true to get people uh, passionate enough to, to talk about it without mm-hmm. verifying the authenticity. Yeah, but I think I think that's helped at least give some of my friends pause. Like, no, it's not real. It's probably not real. <laughs> so, um, right. uh, yeah, and so I I thought it was particularly interesting that you had advocated that that literacy be embedded in um, the platforms themselves. I hadn't seen that before. I had seen um, a lot of the Baltic countries have critical thinking kind of sewn into the national education curriculum from kindergarten Mm -hmm. up through because they've been dealing with this for the last 60 years um it's not new to them it's maybe a new medium but the the act of uh trying to influence a society is not new have you seen any moves at the university level to address this in terms of just building up a critical thinking mindset or skill set for for students uh I haven't. Um, I think that as a general matter, unfortunately, um, universities, colleges, the uh, professors who uh, teach classes Mm -hmm. um, at those institutions generally uh, see this whole world as being you know, kind of outside the the perimeter that they set up around uh, academic uh, work. Um, but I think it is uh, important enough uh, that it, it absolutely ought to be integrated into uh, into the curriculum and 
it is something that I've begun to talk to uh, people here at Stern about, and we'll we'll see how much uh, headway I'm able to make. I'm I'm not a very senior person <laughs> on the academic side, so it's not like I have a lot of uh, a lot of sway there. But we'll uh, we'll see. Well, we I would I would cheer for you because I think <laughs> the it's just clear. I mean, you brought up perimeter, which is funny because it's a term we use often in cybersecurity. That and we say that there is no perimeter anymore, right? Because mm-hmm. you used to have these firewall controls around your network. Yeah, but you're now you're employees at the Starbucks on public Wi-Fi across the street doing whatever they want, you know, how is that a perimeter based system working for you right now? And so I would say the same, you have a cloistered academic setting in the classroom, but your students are still using social media, talking on it, organizing with it, you know, outside, inside campus walls, what have you. So, um, that is interesting. Yes. I, I champion that. Um, I, like also that the report calls out the war room mentality. You know, I when I was reading the report and I saw, and we have seen this in some of our research too, that they'll set up uh, war rooms weeks ahead of a, a, an election and there'll be lots of press around it being set up. And I was like, weeks? This operation has been in place for three years. <laughs> like, what are you going to catch right. in the last few weeks that hasn't, if you've already changed minds What's the point? Right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, as I note in the report, I mean, there, the, the use of the war room sort of gesture is susceptible to being uh, just purely a, a PR stunt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one would hope that it it would be more than that. That it would that it would signal that uh, for far longer than the war room itself has existed or will exist, because they tend to take these things down um, once the election in question is over, um, that it, that it signals uh, a new determination uh, on the part of these companies. But, you know, the, you know, you have to wait and see what the actual proof is. You're you're of course right that, that gathering uh, 30 people into a large conference room and putting lots and lots of monitors on the wall um, is not by itself going to, uh, solve very much. Um, moreover, you know, if you want to use some recent examples, uh, the challenge gets more complicated when you a- ask what's actually going on on the ground. Um, in Brazil and India, uh, the main problem when they had presidential elections relatively recently, Brazil in late 2018 yep. and India in the spring of 2019, uh you know, there, there actually wasn't anything really to monitor from a, a war room because a lot of the disinformation being exchanged in those elections was being um, shuttled around via WhatsApp, right. a, an encrypted, an encrypted uh, message service that even Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, uh, you know, is is unable to look in on. I mean, you, they, they they don't have the capacity or at least they say they don't have the capacity to look over the shoulder of WhatsApp users um, and, and see what's what's going on. So it, it, the, the problem has convolutions within convolutions. It's very complicated. Um, and uh, this is why uh, it, it's a, a major undertaking that the companies uh, need to uh, need to do uh, to try to get their arms around this. Indeed. I, I appreciated the note on the tactical 
improvements that could be made on WhatsApp. And I think most of our listeners are probably here in the U.S. And um, this is no joke. It's not just disinformation. There's been life and death stuff on WhatsApp. There have been, uh, you know, hoaxes about stealing children for organ harvesting. You know, two people were burned alive in Mexico as a result of that kind of lynch mob mentality. It's happened actually multiple times in India. Um, and it's, that is just terrifying um, yep. that, that that's, that's possible. You also call out Instagram, uh, which I found quite interesting. So in my past life at a marketing agency, we would have talked about how you might message differently on Facebook versus Instagram, given the demographics. Um, mm-hmm. And you call out Instagram because it has powerful mimetic value or it's just trading on ideas visually. Um, right. Do you also suspect that the type of disinformation might be uh, curated or catered differently to a different audience, like issues that touch on younger voters versus older voters? I think it's possible. Um, I, I, I can't claim to have, you know, hard evidence uh, of that. Um, you know, the the sort of core example for Instagram um, from t- the 2016 round of disinformation was the uh, image of a police officer, you know, half clothed in mm-hmm. in a Ku Klux Klan outfit and the the caption said something like, you know, the Ku Klux Klan has been infiltrating police departments since some date. Um, and it was basically, you know, part of the, uh, the well-documented effort to, uh, uh, create a rift between African-Americans and other Americans, uh, particularly on the issue of, of, uh, abusive uh, policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a very good example of how you don't need a lot of elaborate text and how Instagram can be a, a, an effective vehicle for that type of, of uh, pernicious uh, meme. I think if, if one were uh, uh, thinking about strategizing how to reach out to young voters, perhaps first-time voters uh, this time around, uh, it would be natural to think first of, of Instagram because that's become uh, the popular go-to uh, platform for uh, young people, uh, more so than uh, Facebook, uh, the proper, uh, which is something Facebook as a commercial matter is very much aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that and and just the record from 2016 uh, are, are the reasons uh, why I thought it was worth pointing out that Instagram deserved some special attention. Also, uh, Facebook is, is only belatedly um, kind of changing the the rules and policies on Instagram so that there's more uh, ability to identify problematic uh, material there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a, another reason uh, that, uh, that that platform deserves attention. Great. Um, well, given that the report comes again out of a business school and out of, again, the goal of that uh, center within the business school to engage private enterprise. Um, yep. Have you seen since the publication any outreach from those uh, companies? Have they come to you? Has it been primarily it getting passed on to them? Have you seen any action come as yeah. a result? Uh, it, well, let me just describe to you, you know, how things have unfolded. It's our practice to, uh, in the spirit of uh, both fact checking and uh, ultimately advocacy to share a draft pre-publication with the subject companies. And, so, and we did that. 
um, and uh, they made uh, a variety of comments. Uh, we had differing levels of, of, of engagement um, from the, the three main companies we uh, we dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to get into the details of, 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 of the back and forth, um, but in, in broad strokes, I would say that you know that there was not uh, any kind of broad thematic pushback. Like you guys are completely off base. You're headed in the wrong direction. (laughs) Everything you say is not really a problem. Um, That wasn't, it was much more uh, a matter of, you know, these are things that we're, we're concerned about. Uh, They don't agree with everything we recommend. Um, But uh, I got the feeling from that process uh, that they are uh, concerned, worried, um, that in contrast to the public pronouncements of a Mark Zuckerberg who says, I'm confident we have everything under control, that, you know, they're, they're, they're not uh, completely certain that uh, uh, they, they know what's coming at them and they know exactly how to uh, how to deal with it. Indeed. Again, it's the, the long term, right? You uh, yeah. build a better safe. They learn to pick it. They build a better safe that, you know, it's, that's right. the, the back and forth. Um, okay. And lastly, you, you, you talk about the recommendation for a C level content officer. Do you have, yeah. uh, could you elaborate on what you think that that person would bring to the organization and what kind sure. of background they, they should or should not have? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the idea is that, um, responsibility for dealing with different aspects of the harmful content problem, or a little bit more specific, the disinformation problem, um, are that responsibility is is spread around to different teams um, within these companies. Something that I know not because I have a copy of the org chart in front of me, which I don't, um, but based on our uh, uh, dealings with the, the companies and um, how many different people we've encountered who have a piece of that uh, 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 jurisdiction. And I, I'm not here to propose, uh, you know, a broad reorganization of any, mm-hmm. any company, but, uh, it does seem to me that if there were a single person who was the focal point of everything having to do with harmful content, uh, that everything that these various teams did flowed through that person, um, and that person had the ear of the CEO, um, that that would inevitably elevate the uh, significance uh, of the of the challenge in, in the eyes of the CEO, the board of directors, and and that that would be a salutary thing. Yeah. Uh, in terms of background, um, one idea that we've offered is that someone, a very senior person from the world of media or journalism. Um, might be uh, bring the uh, common sense, the eye for uh, rigor, fake stuff, <laughs> yeah, uh, and 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 a sense of of uh, you know what's real and what's not real, which is a which is a challenge that uh, you know top media executives face every day in deciding what do we go with and what do we not go with. They don't. Mm-hmm uniformly do, execute that responsibility perfectly. Some some media organizations are quite irresponsible and are going just with whatever is sensational. Uh, the old 
uh, cliche about uh, local television: if it bleeds, it leads. Right. So it's it's, it's not that it's not that everyone in in the media business is uh, is some type of paragon of of virtue or or wisdom, but that was just one area, you know, I, again, I'm not going to nominate people in particular, but right. I'm a former journal, I'm a former journalist and I could, if, if one of these companies came to me off the record and said, well, who do you mean? I could give them the names of some senior people who I, you know, I've either worked under or know of quite well, um, that could fill this role. Um, it's not a suggestion. I think it's, I want to add because just to be fair, that, uh, has been particularly well received. <laughs> right. Well, I, I mean, think it's interesting because it does bring up the larger point of diversity. And I talk about this as experience diversity, right? So far to date, purely technological and engineering solutions are not solving the problem. Right. And that may right. be because those people in those companies just simply don't have a background in what you're saying, which is discerning uh, at a large scale stories that are perceptibly false or misleading. Could be, could be. So, you know, you, you, you put the suggestion out there, you, you hope somebody's, uh, somebody's listening, somebody's reading and uh, you know, you do what you can to, uh, to make the arguments. Great. Well, I, I certainly hope they are listening, and um, we we were certainly listening and find the report fascinating. Thank you again for taking uh, the time out of your day to talk with us today. Yes, thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. I, I appreciate it. Great, and we uh, will we'll stay in touch. All right. Thank All right. you. Thanks very Thanks, much, Paul. Paul. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again to Paul for joining us. We are so lucky to have him talking about this report that impacts everybody. If you haven't read it, go download the report. It's it's worth the read. Yes. And more importantly, it's free. You just have to go uh, find it. You can just say NYU Stern School Disinformation Social Media. You're, you know, you're all savvy Google users. You can find it and you should read it. Yes. Um, so the news that we are following this week, I am hesitant to record on a Monday because it could be out of date by the time this podcast is released. But apropos of our discussion with Paul, uh, Facebook is rolling out uh, some measures to fight anti-vaccine misinformation on both Facebook and Instagram. So now when you start to look for those things, whether it's like a hashtag on Instagram, hashtag vaccines, or you're looking up vaccine stuff on Facebook, you will get pop-ups that tell you, um, are you looking for this? We want you to see reliable information and it gives you a link to the CDC website um, or you can uh, cancel your search or you can elect to see posts anyway. So it's trying to get in front of the user at the same time. Um, so I think that's very well-timed given um, the nature of this report. Yeah, it sounds like a positive step forward, a way Facebook and Instagram policies are aligning and giving end users a chance to make a more informed decision before reading something that could be false. Yes, and, you know, potentially deadly. Yes. Um, okay, in lighter news, I should say, it's not, uh, it's not any less serious, but we have seen a number of account takeover attacks on high-profile individuals of late. Last week, it was the actress Chloe Grace Moretz. Uh, this week or this weekend was uh, Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man himself. In the case of Chloe, it was the usual takeover, issue a bunch of racist nonsense, um, 
and uh, I think they they were able to wrest control pretty quickly. In the case of Downey Jr., however, it changed the bio to include a Bitly link. Purportedly, um, it was the actor sharing his wealth by providing free iPhones or or discount iPhones. So obviously, um, kind of a weird hack, but. I think highlights a critical problem because that could have been like a major phishing site. Right. A, a more conspicuous change to an account where you wouldn't know it was taken over and instead they send you to a phishing site to take some of your money, steal your credentials. Uh, the possibilities are sort of limitless. Yeah, just take over your computer um, as the site loads. Okay, so I said it on Twitter and I will say it again. These uh, account takeover attacks do not need to happen. Uh, we protect against them. I try not to do too much of this sh shameless commercial on the podcast, but it's just annoying to see it happening when it can be easily prevented. Um, and also, you know, just something to think about when you're trying to protect your brand, whether you are a private corporation or a celebrity, you've taken a long time to build an audience. Let's protect that, that brand. Um, okay. So that's all for this week. Um, and we will be back next time as always. Thank you to Matias Cephalidi for our theme music, Abby Bruce for sound design and production. And if you like what you heard, Give us a rating on the Apple Podcast uh, storefront or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, stay safe, y'all.